Well, just before we get started, uh, I wanted to tell you that uh, the communion cups there had been left out for you to take, but this week is a special Sunday, and we won't be doing communion this week because we are going to be doing three baptisms at the end of the service. So super exciting to do baptisms, but because of the time that it takes, we will not have uh, time today to do communion. Next week, we will, God willing. You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Some of you will recognize these words from Johnny Cash's song, No Earthly Good. Judging by the language of the song, Johnny seems to have had the church in mind. The sentiment of this song is that Christians have kept their theology stored up in their minds, but when it comes to real-life stuff happening around them, they're practically useless. They seem to have their heads stuck in the clouds, clueless to the needs of people right in front of them. Cash says, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. And while many in the church may scoff at Johnny's critique, deeming him unqualified to criticize because of his lifestyle or fame or career, Maybe us Christians would do well to humble ourselves and to listen more carefully to what outsiders are saying about us. And if the shoe fits, we need to own our failures and ask God for new mercies to forgive us and empower us to be people who are both heavenly minded and earthly good. Church, this morning I'd like us to consider our practical theology. And we'll do this by looking at Romans chapter 12. So as you flip there, let me remind you that in Romans chapters 1 through 11, we see how the true God meets us in our rebellion and changes us by faith in his Son. He then comes to live in our hearts by his Holy Spirit who continually changes us to become more like Jesus. And this God is still actively working and intervening in other people's lives as they call on Jesus throughout history and throughout the world. This is the good news that Paul expounds in the first 11 chapters. And when he gets to the end of chapter 11, he breaks into praise. Romans is a great lesson in practical theology because it takes us through heart-enlarging theology to heart-expressing praise, which we've just, just done, then to heart-engaged action. The first 11 chapters provide the leverage for Paul's direct surgical applications into the life of the church. And since Romans was written not to theology students, but to a church full of sinners like ours, Romans is an excellent place to be trained in practical theology 101. Now, I've said this word theology a few times now, so what do I mean by this? John Frame, who's been a theologian for decades, defines theology this way. Theology is the application of Scripture by persons to every area of life. So Calvary, as a church, as a whole, 
would you say we're good at applying Scripture to every area of our life? Is our theology mere theory or is it breaking into practice as we live? Do our praises of God end here on Sundays or do they come with us into all the corners of our life? And for those of us who are good at applying Scripture to others, are we as good at applying Scripture to ourselves? This morning I'd like us to start with the man or the woman in the mirror. The passage that we'll be looking at will require us to make some surgical strikes of Scripture onto our own hearts. I'd like us all who love Jesus to consider whether or not we're good practical theologians. And by that, I don't mean have we arrived. I mean, are we still applying Scripture to the way we think and live as we think and live? Is our love for Jesus still changing the way we practice what we preach? Author of the classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers says, The test of my love for Jesus is the practical one. All the rest is sentimental jargon. This morning is sure to be a test of our love for Jesus, friends. Because our theology ought to be lived out in love for God and neighbor. And as we begin, I want to say that if you have ears to hear and you're breathing, this chapter will challenge you. It will. I believe the Holy Spirit will do a cross-examination of all of our hearts through this very text. And as he does, we'll keep the gospel close by to apply scripture to ourselves like a good practical theologian should. In Romans chapter 12 this morning, we're going to see how, we're going to see that receiving God's mercies in Christ changes how we think and live. Now before we dive in, let's ask God to work his word into our hearts this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from you now, to be challenged to change and to receive new mercies that are tailor-made for us in Christ, right here and now, where we live. Help us, we pray, empower us to be motivated to change and to become more like Jesus. May you give us greater glimpses of the beauty of Christ as we look at your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing this text shows us is that receiving God's mercies in Christ changes who we worship. Look at verse 1. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This passage is like a bridge from theology and doxology into practice. And in verse 1, Paul is giving us the gospel as the motivation and empowerment to live for God. Notice what he says in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here is the pastoral tone and touch for true life change. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't scold these believers into action. 
Paul knows that heart change and our practical theology starts by receiving the mercies of God, which sums up chapters 1 through 11. The mercies of God describe God's goodness to us in our rebellion and misery through Jesus. Let me say that one more time. You might want to mark it. The mercies of God describe God's goodness to us in our rebellion and misery through Jesus. The mercies of God. And we receive these mercies personally when we meet Christ in hearing and trusting the gospel. So Paul is giving us an opportunity now to fasten the eyes of our heart on the mercies of God personified and embodied in Jesus Christ. And what effect do these mercies have on us? Well, they're actually supposed to change the way we think and live. As J. Gresham Machen said years ago, Christianity transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of news. The piece of news that transforms us is about a merciful Savior. And he's been actively transforming lives through this piece of news for centuries. And he's still transforming lives even today through that same piece of news. Has he transformed you? Listen to how Thomas Watson explains the effects of God's mercies. It is the great design of the scripture to present God as merciful. The mercies of God have a melting influence upon the soul. They dissolve it in love to God. God's judgments make us fear him. His mercies make us love him. I love that. And when we personally get a glimpse of God's mercies in Christ, his spirit fills us with love, with his love. And, and then what happens? We want to love him back, don't we? And how do we do this? Back to verse 1. In view, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, since we're about to get into many commands, I want to encourage you not to take your eyes off the mercies of God. The mercies of Christ. His mercies include his personal presence in us to motivate and empower us to live how he tells us to live. And as you'll notice from the flow of Romans, since God makes us holy and we're in union with Christ, since God makes us holy and acceptable through Christ by faith, now he calls us to be holy which is really calling us to be consistent with who God made us to be and who God says we are. So God's mercy is not just uh, the key to getting into Christ, to starting the Christian life, but it's also the key to becoming more like Christ, to growing in the Christian life day by day. And the way we become more like Christ is actually quite surprising. It's to take up our cross and follow him. 
It's to present our bodies, meaning our whole person, as a living sacrifice in worship to the living God. Scripture shows us that a life rearranged by the mercies of God changes our deepest heart commitments. We don't live for ourselves or our sin anymore. We're new creatures now. We have new desires now. We stopped living for our dreams. We picked up a cross, and now we follow Jesus. Because our life, friends, is not our own anymore. We were bought with a price. Now that is mercy. This would be a good time to ask ourselves, how are we doing? Does this sound like our life? Have the mercies of God in Christ taken root in you? Has it produced a change in who you live for, in who you worship? Are you all in with Jesus? Do you want to live for Christ who died and rose again on your behalf? Or are you still living for yourself? Have you met Christ in mercy yet? If you have, I bet he's changed you, hasn't he? Now, if you haven't, please tell someone in here before you leave. Today is the day to come and close with Jesus, the merciful one. Ask around. There are many people in this room that could help you to find him. More on living as a sacrifice in verse 2. Let's look at that together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we're shown that Christians aren't to be conformed or shaped by this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Bathing them, as it were, in the mercies of God constantly. And the world here is referring to powers, systems, and people that are bent on rebellion against God. The world has many voices calling our name and seeking to interpret and influence our way of thinking and living. And one way it does this is by deleting God from the picture it presents to us. Whether it's on Paw Patrol, TikTok, the news, or music. I know, parents, I just spoiled your day. The world is offering an interpretation of life. It's giving its spin on things, but it's taken God out of the picture. These voices we listen to, friends, are not neutral. The world tells us to follow our heart, and Jesus tells us to follow him. So the question for us is this, who are we listening to? Who are we following? We Christians must resist, actively resist the world's influences and interpretations of life and be renewed constantly by the gospel, the mercies of God in Christ. And what does this look like? Sinclair Ferguson says this, As the greatness of the gospel begins to fill and to expand our minds, as we come to know God's Son, 
through God's word, by God's spirit, a process of change takes place in our thinking, feeling, desiring, willing, and living. God's word and spirit work together and actively and powerfully change us. And with that mind renewal, we are given the wisdom needed to discern the will of God so that we can test things when life is not as straightforward as we'd like it to be. So the process of change, friends, is slow. But by God's Spirit, he is working through the word in us and on us. So Christian, the question I have for you is this. Is your mind still being renewed by the gospel? This is the way the mercies of Christ change who we worship, who we live for. Next notice, receiving God's mercies in Christ changes how we think about ourselves. Now as we proceed through the rest of this passage, I'll be giving an overview. Okay, so we're going to go up thousands of feet to gaze at this beautiful chapter. But if there's anything at all that we look at and see in this chapter that challenges you today, take note of it, and your homework as a practical theologian will be to seek God for the heart change required to apply and obey these scriptures. So in verse 3, Paul addresses the whole church in Rome. He says, I say to everyone among you, So too today, the rest of this text is addressed to every believer in this room and every believer online. Now, what's the charge for us? In verse 3, Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Of verse 3, Kent Hughes says, Paul is not asking the believer to estimate himself according to changing subjective feelings, but to estimate himself according to his relationship with Christ. A clear focus on Christ, then, is the key to thinking rightly about ourselves and should be the goal of our spiritual practice. Now, church, let's apply this scripture to ourselves. Are we thinking of ourselves or our church more highly than we ought to think? Have we become puffed up and self-aggrandizing? Do we think we're the kings and everyone else should bow down to us? Or are we living for King Jesus and thinking of ourselves simply as servants in a relationship with him? Well, the gospel changes and is changing not only how we think about ourselves, but also how we think about the church. Look at verses uh, 4 through 5, where we see receiving God's mercies in Christ changes how we think about the church. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This verse describes the church as a body. 
we, the church, are different members in a whole body. So don't think of membership in a church like uh, membership at a gym, where you go to the gym and they don't care how fit you get as long as you pay them, okay? That's not the membership the New Testament has in mind, okay? That's not what we have in mind. Think of the church, rather, as members or limbs or body parts, okay, linked to Christ, the head, and linked to one another. Is this the way you think of the church? A body connected with many different members? A body in which you're connected to? Or is it just you and Jesus? By the way, I should say, if you're interested in becoming a member here, tonight on Zoom at 7 p.m., I'm running our membership class. So if you're interested in that, please tap me on the shoulder afterwards, or don't keep your social distancing, okay? Just let me know afterwards, or let Pastor Matt know, and we'll sign you up for that membership class tonight. Next, we see that receiving God's mercies in Christ changes how we think about our gifts. Look at verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we've just seen that the church is one body with many different connected members. And now we see one way these differences can play out in the life of the whole church. Each believer has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. And Paul lists seven gifts here. But I won't have time to explain these gifts or get into this in any detail. However, I do need to mention that these gifts have a purpose in the church. As 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, spiritual gifts are given to us, quote, for the common good. Okay? That is to say that however God has graciously gifted you, the point of your gift is not to toot your own horn, but to serve others with it. God gave each believer a gift, not so we could look uh, good in our church, but so we could do good to our church. We're to serve God and others with our gifts. Now, if you want to find out your spiritual gift, let me encourage you to take a simple approach. Get involved in the life of the church. Just join a small group, hang with the people, come and serve, okay? Be a part of the life of the church, and Take a look at your bulletin this week at the service team needs, okay? And let me and Pastor Matt know where you'd like to serve. Get involved in the life of the church. And as you serve, I believe God's spirit, his word, and the church will actually help you discern your gift. Don't underestimate the simple approach to discovering your spiritual gifts. Now, let's look at some of the most concrete stuff of practical theology in verses 9 through 21. Here we see that receiving God's mercies in Christ changes how we respond to others. 
Now remember, before we read this together, this whole passage is addressed to the whole church. So, this means no matter what our spiritual gifts are, we don't get a pass to disobey any of these commands. Okay, every one of these commands is coming right at you. This is the practical test of our love for Jesus. If we're following Jesus, this is how we follow him into the details of life. And we need to keep his mercy close by right now. Because it is by his heart-melting mercy that our desires are changed and our hearts actually want to obey him and apply these scriptures to ourselves. This is the work of a practical theologian. Do you remember John Frame's definition? Theology is the application of scripture by persons to every area of our life. Every area of life. Now with this in mind, let's read Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far, it depends on, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this text confronts every one of us in our apathy, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy, doesn't it? Let's be real here. This is not the kind of passage we Christians read and then say, oh, I'm killing it. I'm killing it in the Christian life. You see me out here? I'm amazing. Basically a legend. In those verses, we're commanded to do over 20 things. And this is difficult. Not because the words are hard to understand or comprehend. This is difficult because these commands make something instantly clear to us. We aren't living the way we should. We aren't living the way we ought to. None of us are, church. Us Christians have indeed been transformed by the mercy of Christ, but we still need his mercies daily to transform us more and more, don't we? I mean, we read this text and we're immediately struck with the reality that we are great sinners and we fall and we fail daily. But it is here in these feelings of guilt and failure that we must look again 
at the mercies and goodness of God towards us in Christ. We must remember we need Christ in us to live the Christian life through us. We need God to be at work with us and in us and on us to shape us and make us into the kind of people that this passage is speaking of. You and I need the Holy Spirit to make us more and more holy each day. Friends, the Christian life without God is not going to progress. We need God in us, at work on us, to shape us and make us into the kind of people this passage is speaking of. Now, I don't have time to go through all of these commands, of course, but I'd like to encourage every one of you to be a practical theologian by doing your homework. Do your homework on this passage and on your own heart. Okay, now here's how you're going to do this. Okay? If you accept my challenge, here's how you're going to do this. If there is any command in this text that sticks out to you as particularly timely, challenging, and personal, write it down, take it home, run the command through the mercies of Christ, apply it to yourself, and meditate on it until it starts changing the way you think and live and respond to others. That's your homework. Now here's your motivation. God is with you. If you've been born again, his spirit lives in you. Your journey of obedience is not a solo project. God is at work on you and in you to make you more like Jesus. More willing and joyfully obedient to the Heavenly Father. But before we go, I'd like to highlight one command that I've found particularly relevant and timely for me. I've been doing some practical theology of my own on my own heart over the last few months, and I've been using verse 21. It says this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Over the past few months, this verse has become near and dear to me. I've needed it, and I've feasted on it many times. Because it answers this important question. How should we Christians respond to people when they sin against us? When people lie, use, and abuse us, what do we do and where do we go? Some of you have experienced the sharp edge of blatant evil and abuse, and misuse, and you've been used and manipulated by people. And you know that evil is cold, hard, and cruel. This verse doesn't make excuses for evil, but it calls a spade a spade. Scripture knows better than us that evil is a real problem and power in our world. But this verse is concerned with our response to evil as Christians. How do we respond in the face of evil? Do we start planning our counterattack? The flesh loves to seek revenge. Well, Scripture is saying here, 
in unmistakable terms to everyone in the church that when evil comes at you, you can either crumble under its power, letting it warp you into an evildoer, or you can overcome evil with good. And this is so very important because when evil comes at us from the outside, it appeals to the evil inside to come out of us, doesn't it? Someone smacks you in the face, you flare up. It's go time. It's on now. Right? The evil outside is appealing. Seeking to lure the evil inside to come out. But we Christians, we're different, aren't we? Yes, Christian, you and I still have a squatter in our hearts. There's a resident evil living inside of us called, called sin. So the evil that every Christian needs to be most concerned with overcoming is the evil that we're responsible for. The evil that looks back at us in the mirror. We're to overcome evil with good. Now how is this possible? Enter David Paulison. The mercies of God work to forgive and then to change what is deeply evil but even more deeply curable by God's hand and voice. We can be fundamentally rewired by the merciful presence of the Messiah. Friends, this is what we have a gospel for. This is why we emphasize the necessity of preaching it over and over and over to ourselves. To change us. We Christians have the presence of the merciful Savior living in us. The Almighty, and He is so powerful that He even changes the way we respond to evil. So the question for us to take home is this. Is He still changing the way we think and live? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize our need to change. We need more and more mercy from God in Christ today. We need you to continue to bathe our mind in the scriptures. Help us to apply them directly to our hearts. Help us to be a community that continues to change and has been changed by the grace of God, embodied in Christ. Pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our congregation now, for those who are not yet convinced of the mercy of Christ, that they would be won to him by the heart-melting mercies of God. And for those of us who have hardened our hearts, Lord, change us, forgive us, we repent. We need you. In Jesus' name.